My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The warning, The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Sound. Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Conspiracy. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. Hey everyone! So before we get started, we want to let you know we are planning to do a mailbag episode, probably like a few episodes from now, so you got some time. Uh, and we would love to get any questions, any theories, any thoughts you might have. We want your input. So if you have something to say, uh, you have a few options. You can email us at anamorphologycast at gmail.com. You can talk to us on Twitter, where we are at anamorphology. And uh, you can send us an ask on Tumblr. We are anamorphologycast.tumblr.com. So yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. So what did we read this week? Uh, we read number 15, The Escape. Cool, cool, cool. It's Do you spelled wanna... the same as Escape. <laughs> it's going to be one All right. of those <laughs> recording <laughs> recurring, A recurring segment. It's spelled the same as... <laughs> Yeah, um, just all the homonyms. It'll be great. <laughs> so I really liked this book. It felt more like sort of a standard Animorphs book than the last few we've read, because 12 and 14 were both very silly. I mean, so the standard Animorphs book is the one where it's all about PTSD and toxic masculinity, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's where a character, like there's some action stuff happening and there are some stakes that actually seem to have consequences. The opening caper makes a return. There's an opening caper and... There's a character dealing with like complex psychological stuff and or failing to deal. Failing to deal could also be an interpretation of this book. There's a character suffering from some complex <laughs> yes. thinking about some complex psychological right. the stuff. The typical Animorphs book is about suffering. Yeah, I don't think in any of the Animorphs books they resolve that conundrum, that emotional challenge. Well, right. I well mean, it's how like do you? it's like you were saying a while ago, Jenny, that it's not the characters don't like learn a lesson that they will carry forward with them, mm-hmm. right? They sort of they sort of like maybe take a step forward in some direction, but yeah. Marco can't resolve all these issues. It's, no. it's just who he is. What did you think of this one, Greg? I liked it. It's not one of the ones that I have liked the best, but there were a lot of funny moments and it did feel more like a classical Animorphs book. Yeah. Feels like a while since we've seen one, especially since we spent so long on Andalite Chronicles. Yes. 13 was the closest we've had recently, but even that one is like sort of a different kind of action plot than we usually see. Also, it's a a big upper comparatively. Yes. 13 is special. 13 is special, yes. 15 is like, yeah, very like standard Animorphs book. This one, so since peek behind the microphone here, this is the fastest we've had to read an Animorphs book for the podcast. So in the past 24 hours, I have... I read the whole thing to make sure I would read it, and then I went through it again, taking notes. And I actually, like, I feel like I didn't, I, I liked it the first time through, but mm-hmm. I feel like I kind of want to, like, write an essay about it now Ooh, that I've, now that I, like, it's, re- there's a lot. I feel there's like there's a, a lot. lot. And it builds really nicely on the two previous Marco books that we've had oh. in, in like, really interesting ways. So I'm so excited to talk about it. I want to get into it. Should I tell you what happened in the book? Sense, you know. Yeah, please. You Keep it to 60 seconds it. tops. There's no way it'll be more than 60 seconds. I would never do that. Okay, so this book starts with an opening caper 
like we said, we haven't seen one in a while. Uh, they turn into parrots to convince the Amazon cafe that they don't want to use live parrots at their restaurant. And while they're at this mall, uh, Eric the Chi comes up, tells them about this new thing the Yerks are doing uh, offshore by this island. And he uh, tells just Jake and Marco because Marco's mom, Mr. One, is involved. The others don't know that Marco's mom is Mr. One. So they go out to investigate. Uh, there's also some new species there, the Lyrans, and Axe tells them that the Lyrans are psychic, which is a big danger for the Animorphs because they would be able to see through the morphs. So they morph dolphins to go out and investigate. Tobias has to acquire a dolphin, which is its whole separate adventure. And they uh, find this underwater facility hidden beneath a hologram on the ocean floor. And they see a submarine that has Visser 1 in it, Marco's mom, and the Lyran. So definitely the rumors are true. And they would investigate more, but they get attacked by hammerhead sharks who are acting way smarter than sharks normally would. And they, in fact, are losing to these sharks. And the sharks get, like, called back to the facility by this signal. And they're like, something really weird is going on. So they decide they have to acquire hammerhead sharks. So they go to the aquarium, and they get caught by uh, a couple of controller guards. They end up having to destroy a large amount of the aquarium in order but they do get these sharks and meanwhile marco is suffering from you know he's he's ashamed of having run from the sharks so he's kind of dealing with fear and like thoughts about cowardice he's dealing with this whole thing where his what does he do about his mom does you know if he has to kill her can he kill her that kind of stuff he has this thing where he really wants to morph a shark so he does it in the school swimming pool and like some people come in and it's a big mess uh, but they all go out and uh, to the island again, and they morph sharks, and they go to the facility. They kind of get caught up in this wave of sharks and put into this sort of shark assembly line situation where they get injected by something, and then they get something drilled into their heads. And it turns out that the, it's like this control chip that the Yerks are using to control the sharks uh, to give them these injections to make them smarter. And Axis theory is that they would only be doing this because shark brains aren't complex enough to take a Yerk. So they must be making them smarter so they can infest the sharks and use them as shock troops on a watery planet, presumably Lyra. So now the Animorphs have these Yerk chips in their heads. Very bad. Uh, don't go away when they morph. So they decide they, they need to destroy the facility to make them go away. Half the group uh, causes a distraction, and Marco's half of the group is going to go find the controls of the facility. And Marco, as part of this, walks into Mr. One's office in his human form, has a conversation with her, learns that they are planning to take over Lyra, they're using the sharks for that, learns Visser 3 is on his way, and makes his mom think that he's a controller. That doesn't seem to be his goal, but he does that. They set the self-destruct on the facility. Uh, there's this, Visser 3 shows up, there's this like battle. Um, Marco does not kill Visser 1. Uh, Visser 3 tries to kill Axe, and they try to kill Visser 3, and no one kills anyone. But then Rachel is about to kill Visser 1, and Marco's like, no, wait, don't, she's my mom. So now they all know, and uh, the facility destructs and they aren't sure if Visser 1 survives or not. Marco thinks maybe she did, maybe she didn't, uh, but the chips in their heads dissolve because the Yerks don't leave evidence. And the facility is destroyed, they have ruined the plan to create the smart sharks, and uh, now Marco just has to decide, like, does he hope his mom survived? Does, does he not? He decides that, you know, he's still eventually going to save her. He's choosing hope. The end. I think that was like 55 seconds. So, yeah, yeah, right, on the, yeah. right under the yeah. clock. <laughs> Where do we start? I don't even, I don't know. I, I have a lot of notes. This might be one where I want to start with some of the relationships. Ooh, yes. So did you have a relationship you thought was most prominent in this book, right? I did. There was one that I thought was most prominent. Yeah. 
And one of the reasons I thought that it was most prominent was because it's described as a marriage. <laughs> and I'd like to read you that line. Oh, please read us all the lines. So uh, it is Jake and Marco talking to Eric. And uh, Eric is trying to say, I need to talk to you privately, Marco. Marco says to him, well, I don't have any secrets from Jake. I think that's the basis of a good marriage. Openness. Honesty. <laughs> and then it turns out it's about his mom. And he still doesn't have any secrets from Jake because yeah, Jake knows all true. about it. And that line made me laugh a whole bunch. I loved it a lot. <laughs> well, because Jake is the only one who knows the secret, there are so many moments where like, Jake pulls Marco aside and checks in on him. And um, it's just very much about the dynamics of their friendship. Mm-hmm. There are some other great lines, which I would like to read. Go on. When half of the group is causing the distraction. So it's Jake, Rachel, and Cassie. Not just Jake, for the record. And Marco's like, all right, let's go save Jake. That guy, he's always needing me to come along and rescue his butt. He could have said all three of them, he's decided to rescue Jake. Good point. There's also this really wonderful exchange. They're waiting for a taxon to come through a door so they can go through. What if another taxon doesn't come out, Axe wondered. Don't you Andalites believe in luck? Marco says. No, me neither. How about hope? We believe in hope. Good. Now me. I believe in Jake. What? And then Jake comes through for that. It's just, it's really great. He talks about um, Jake's a natural hero. Heroes always know what's right. Yeah, that's my friend Jake, he says. There's the scene where Marco is being kind of impulsive because that seems to be his standard response. Also, all the other Animorphs' standard response to, like, trauma, to difficult feelings. Especially when they're narrating. It's very noticeable in him because he's normally so, like, strategic and canny. Yeah. So he, like, he's he's he's, he's, going a little wild here and is, like, riding this roller coaster. And he's like, Jake, you have to do this. And... And Jake's like, okay, this is ridiculous, but but sure. And, and Marco says something like, yeah, you know, Jake likes to act all serious, but like he's still like my buddy Jake. And he's very determined to like hold on to that friendship and the way it was. Right. It's and clearly very the, important to him. Well, the thing that is so tragic about the Marco and Jake relationship in this book is yeah. that Jake has really stepped up his ability to try and reach out to the members of his team and make them like feel better. And so throughout the book, he's constantly checking in with Marco. He's very generously deferring to Marco's decision-making on a lot Mm -hmm. of things about whether, how he's going to be involved in the mission, whether they're going to share the secret with the rest of the group. Um, But he's really trying to get Marco to open up. And they have this whole confrontation where Marco's starting basically Jake calls Marco out and says, you're not cracking any jokes. You're super tense. Everyone thinks it's really weird. Why don't you just tell everyone why you're so upset? Tell everyone about Uh Mr. One. And Marco's like, I don't want that. I don't want their pity. You know, like they're going to treat me differently. And Jake's like, I don't, I don't care. Like it's not actually going to affect anyone else. I just think it might be good for you. Right. (laughs) But Marco doesn't want to do it. Right. He has to, he has to keep his feelings bottled up. There's this line, Jake's my best friend, but he's my best friend because I'm me, you know, because I'm funny and smart and I'd back him up anytime, place. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'm me, Marco, not some touchy-feely, share-your-feelings-with-the-group kind of person. I don't share feelings. I make people laugh, which is sort of a separate topic we should talk about. But yeah, but, he isn't really able to open up even to Jake. Yeah, and so he, he sees his relationship. I mean, we can talk about his relationship in the group, but even in his friendship with Jake, right? Mm-hmm. They've always been a certain way. He talks about yeah. how like yeah. they, they've always had this like jokey relationship and it's so great. And Jake's like such an important person He's in his so life. He's so determined but, to keep it but even like though, that. Even, right, even though Jake yeah. wants to 
you know, like create some space for vulnerability, Marco doesn't want to open that door. And the way that's how the the whole book ends is Jake is like, so they think maybe Visser wants dead, maybe she's not. But Jake's like, look, I know you don't want me to pity you. I don't, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want any pity. So I'm just going to ask you one time: Are you okay? Right? Yeah. And Marco says, so like you said, he chooses hope at the end, but. The, what he says to Jake is he doesn't let any of that out. He's just kind of like, you know what? I will be fine after all. Right? So well, th- no, they never have says, that. Um, he says, I'm fine and I'll be better when she's free. Which is actually like giving a little bit, I think. Maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, I actually read <laughs> I'll be better when she's free again as like a way, a way darker thing. He keeps <laughs> talking about how he wants, to, he wants to be able to grieve and move on. Um, yeah. And how yeah. the situation is holding him back. There's a lot about, I don't know, the the two sides. There's a lot about the two sides of hope. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and earlier when Tobias is kind of, so I guess Tobias is afraid of water. So he kind of tries to get out of being a, being a dolphin uh, early on. And so at the very least, Cassie and Marco pick up on Tobias before everyone else. But Jake is also like, he says something super reassuring to him. Like, oh, you know, well, like, that's great. You're our like secret weapon up in the sky. Like you go to buy it. Right. So he's, I feel like he's really, he's really stepping up in terms of trying to make everyone in the group feel good and like, Keep that dynamic going. I was going. thinking about that because I, I picked up on that too. And Tobias is like, I guess I should just do it. And Jake is like, sure, we can go over to the gardens right now. And Tobias is like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do it. And Jake's like, that's fine too. You've always been our secret weapon in the sky. I was like, Jake is being such a good leader and supporting all his decisions. But I do think his his interactions with Marco are maybe partly rooted in their friendship and partly rooted in Jake's like leadership role. Like to what extent is he like being a supportive friend and to what extent is he being like an effective leader of the Animorphs. I mean, that's true. Maybe he's boxing Marco in a little bit because Jake is also not stepping up enough to say like, look, we need to talk about the fact that you need to be able to kill your mother. Right. <laughs> he doesn't, but he, he implies that several times. He's like, Marco, are you okay? Are you going to uh-huh. be able to do what's necessary? Are you going to make sure not to screw up the mission? Right. So like it, Jake could have made a stronger effort to like get through to him. Well, yeah. In either direction. But I'm not sure it's just that. I think Marco, especially with like the roller poster thing, is also reacting to like, Jake used to relate to me as a friend. And I feel like I I need that for like my own self-image and comfort in the world. And now he's relating to me almost almost as an authority figure. And I think he's very like disconcerted by that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he's, he's pulling on Jake. He's like, you'll ride this roller coaster with me. Yeah, and and yeah. even in the opening caper. So Cassie motivates that whole thing. Yeah. But like... Marco's like, haha, we got Jake to come along with this <laughs> really stupid, pointless plan. And Jake's excuse is like, well, you know, Cassie was going to get Rachel to do it. And then they were both going to get you to do it. So I had to come and make sure you guys were okay. But Marco's just like, yeah, you know, Jake's, Jake's along for the ride. We're, we're still having fun. Yeah. So here's another example of Jake <laughs> I found it. Um, sort of prior, prioritizing the, the war side of things. When he saves Marco in the pool or shows up Marco at the pool. Marco's feeling like this anger towards the bullies and Jake isn't like, calm down. We have to talk about like your issues. He's like, save it for the real bad guys, Marco. <laughs> right. Which is pretty cold heart. Like, although that's a pretty effective way of getting Marco to do a thing. It's true, but you know, he's not addressing Marco's like anger issues at all. Well, I mean, he's also not a therapist. Like I feel like for Jake to really like, how could anyone address them with Marco really like that? And it's very utilitarian in a way that I think is super effective mm. as a leadership skill because yeah. he does that for all of them. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he's well, right. He, he knows where Marco is. And so yeah. he's not right. He's not going to be his therapist, but he will get him to be an effective team member. Right. And yeah. I think he does the same thing for Rachel. I think he does the same thing for Cassie. Mm-hmm. And, and to some extent, what he's doing is reiterating the roles in which they that they take on in the, in the group. So mm-hmm. Rachel, you're the fighter. And that's important. And Marco, people are weirded out that you're not joking. Yeah. Yeah. Or you have to tell us why you're not. And it's important for that because of the way you play into this group dynamic. Without you there, we're missing a piece and I need you to do that. And it is very pragmatic and perhaps not overly empathetic, but Mm -hmm. also that's what they've got Cassie for. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And Cassie's, yeah, Jake uses Cassie in her role as the empathetic one. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot about him being trapped sort of in his role as the joker of the group, but there's also like him putting himself there. He really doesn't want to step outside of it because like that's his coping mechanism. He has this whole like long spiel about like, he says, I didn't want their pity. I still don't. I'm a joker. I'm a comedian. That's how I deal with life. See, I've always believed that to some extent you get to decide for yourself what your life will be like. You can either look at the world and say, oh, isn't it all so tragic, so grim, so awful? Or you can look at the world and decide that it's mostly funny. And then he has some examples. You step back far enough from the details, everything gets funny. You say war is tragic. I say, isn't it crazy the way people will fight over nothing? People fight wars to control crappy little patches of empty desert for crying out loud. It's like fighting over an empty soda can. It's not so much tragic as it is ridiculous. Asinine. Stupid. It's like, I see what you're doing. I see why this is necessary for you. You all, He also has this line later, but humor kind of breaks down when the tragedy gets up close and personal. Yeah, you know what? Every tragedy is personal to someone. It's not it's a great example really of a problem. <laughs> well, it's not a great example, but it does it does illustrate the extent to which Mark it's a Marcus coping mechanism, right? Yeah. He's like, it's a really terrible way to see the world, and it's it's like to your point about every, every tragedy is personal to someone. He's it's to me that's kind of like. If you look at the world and you can't feel that tragedy, it's like he's he's shutting down his emotions. Yeah, and right? he can't. Yeah, he can't deal with feeling that tragedy. And he even there's even a bit where he like he he talks about he like makes some joke later, but he's like I, I said it like it was a joke, but I wasn't. I, I didn't actually think it was funny. Right? It's the mm-hmm. same kind of like the humor can be just a defense mechanism. And it very much is. I mean, throughout he's using. We've always seen him use humor as a defense mechanism when people uh-huh. are getting too close or he's worried about being vulnerable. And here we actually start to see that breakdown yeah. where he stops being able to make jokes because it does get personal and having to kind of step back into that role very deliberately. Yeah. And it's not healthy. I was thinking about, um, he has this line. So after his whole thing where Jake talks to him, like, you know, you got to start making jokes again or tell people why you're not. He starts joking. He's like, hey, Tobias, you realize there are no mice underwater, right? See, I was doing my job, playing my part within the group, teasing, joking, exaggerating. That was my role. Uh, Like Jake had pointed out, Marco not making jokes just worries people. And it made me think, like, we kind of were down on him a little in 14 for the joke about Tobias and the mice. But it's interesting how very conscious he is about how he's doing it for the group and for his role in the group. And it's almost this like pro-social thing for him. Mm -hmm. And when he starts getting bogged down with things that are bothering him, he stops doing it. Or like when he's planning to leave the group at five, he stops doing it. He, I mean, it might be a little misguided. A lot of times his subject matter is not good. It might not be a good idea in general. Like you could certainly say that, but like his reasons for doing it are like in large part generous. Right. And the thing that jumped out to me here is he, he really is, um, 
going after Tobias a lot more than Rachel, who's like his usual target. And I feel like we read it as like, stop being such a misogynist, Marco. Like this is, this is not funny, but he's, it's kind of like the same tactic he uses for every person. Right. It's just Rachel's thing is that she's, she's a pretty girl. Right. Mm, So like, and Tobias's thing thing. is he's a bird. Right. So he's, he makes all these like pigeon jokes, chicken jokes, whatever. But it is weird that internally you get that kind of like, self-awareness from him where he seems kind of like oblivious to how yeah, terrible he's, he's being from the outside the subject matter but right. yeah and i think that it's only in his books that we see him being thoughtful about the use of that humor so somewhat it, in his books he's being not strategic necessarily but he's aware of this is a moment of tension this is a moment where people are freaking out i need to be the one who makes a joke mm-hmm. in the other books his sense of humor pops up at places where everyone is fine Everyone was fine. <laughs> <laughs> now we're all mad at you. Right. I don't Shut think up. It's totally yeah. always the case though. Like I think we have seen him make jokes in other books to relieve the tension. Effectively. Right. And we saw him like bait Captain Torelli in fourteen to like fulfill the strategic purpose. I think he doesn't always do it very well. And sometimes he just does make dumb jokes because they occur to him. Like yeah. it's definitely And not- we've seen him he like he's body shaming people at the beach. He was like peeping on that girl in book ten. Yeah. Right. There's other <laughs> problematic stuff he does. Yeah, this is just one component of his thing. But it isn't it's an interesting component. So it's really interesting that dynamic breaks down between him and Rachel in this book. Right. So you get to yeah. see from his side there it's he's like he actually, he says this fascinating thing about Rachel at the beginning. It's really um, interesting. I'll just read the whole thing. So he's, this is where you know, he's describing all the characters as they always do. Rachel is tall and blonde and beautiful and totally without fear. Now, sure, way down inside, she's also insecure, scared by her own inability to fit in and way too pressured to live up to her own high standards. But all that stuff is way down inside. Way down so far that if you ever actually tried to reach it, she'd have sliced and diced you before you even got close. So what first, a description. do you guys think that's Rachel? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's a little bit exaggerated. I don't think she's scared by her own inability to fit in. I don't think that one fits. I think she is pressured to live up to her own high standards. I think the way of being insecure and defensive like that, it's just Marco, right? He sees Rachel as being kind of the same as him. Mm. And then, so I feel like they don't, they're sort of like teasing each other. And Rachel is one of the people who gets weirded out that he's not cracking jokes, right? Or she tries to... There's a couple times when she tries to egg him on and he doesn't give yeah. anything back. And that's kind of like is creating tension. Mm-hmm. But then when she almost kills Visser 1, she has this, he, like she feels really ashamed that she's done that. Or, you know, she, yeah. so she's like really struggling in that moment and tries to reach out to him and apologize. And he's, he like slaps her away. He's like, I yeah. don't, you know, like, I don't want to talk about that. Shut up, Xena. Right. Slices and dices her. Right, right, right. Too close. Right. And then... Um, at the end, you know, she kind of offers him this olive branch of, oh, I heard the submarine, maybe your mom got away. And she then st- just like tears into him, starts making fun of him. And they're back to their old dynamic. Yeah. And he's kind of like, thanks, Dina. But they're just like, they're like ships passing, emotional <laughs> ships passing in the night. If they could only just like sit down and have a conversation about, you know, Rachel, Rachel's probably struggling with her own uh, her own relationship to violence and bloodlust that oh, Marco yeah. was struggling with in this book too, right? But they don't. There's just no opportunity for them to talk about it and deal with it and try and like support each other. Yeah, I mean, you Marco know? wouldn't be able to have that conversation. Yeah, and it, it, like it reminds me of when in book nine when um, Cassie flips out and Rachel's like cradling her in her arms and Rachel's like trying to 
like mm-hmm. comfort her. Mm-hmm. And Cassie's like, oh, this must be so awkward for Rachel. But Rachel probably just cares about her friends, you know? Like they won't, they don't let her have kind of the emotional space in the same way people yeah. don't let Marco do it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we saw in, in the last book, even with the relationship between Cassie and Rachel. We've said a lot about how they don't seem to have a particularly deep connection, emotional mm-hmm. connection. And one of the examples that we brought up for that was Marco had mentioned a couple times about Rachel having this kind of deep insecurity. I think he phrased it differently the last time, but you know, people talk about like Rachel has these has these issues and Cassie doesn't talk about it. She doesn't mm-hmm. say Rachel's really struggling with yeah. violence. She doesn't talk about it. And maybe it's because Cassie's like, yeah, no, she's, this is actually fine, you guys. Like, I think Cassie thinks that about Rachel. Yeah. Right. And she might be right, is my point. I mean, I think she. I don't think she's right. I think we've seen Rachel struggle with. I'm just thinking in terms of like the insecurities right. that Marco is and pointing out. I think Marco's not right. Rachel either. also <laughs> might be kind of on a high right now because we haven't, 12, she wasn't struggling that much. And seven was her big, I'm going to save the yeah. world thing. So, you know, she was definitely struggling in seven, but. Yeah, she's not actually perfectly fearless. I mean, she does, I think, have a nod in 12 to like, also, yeah, sometimes I am really afraid and it's really tough. Like, I think on like the first page, she says that. Right. But that's, that's actually not... being really upfront. It's yeah. like, hey, I yeah. got some issues, but you know, yeah. it's fine. And I think we were speculating in, I think it was in five, that like Marco doesn't see Rachel's weaknesses. Like, that she's not just this warrior. Right. Yeah, in this one, he does actually recognize that. I think he doesn't characterize it very accurately. And that's something we've also seen before. Like, I think it was Cassie who characterized Tobias really weirdly. And, yeah, they they don't always really recognize what each other is like. Though there are, speaking of Rachel things, there's a very Rachel moment when they're at the aquarium. And there's the hammerhead shark. And they're like, so how are we? We have to be in human form to acquire the shark. And Rachel's just like, let's turn into dolphins and beat it up. We'll just like knock it out. And Cassie is like horrified. And Rachel's like, you like, you know, I'm right. You know, like, that's like very Rachel thinking and like kind of scary when you take a step back. There was also the line, 10 of them, hammerhead sharks, against five dolphins and a tiger shark, Rachel said. We can handle it. There are times, Margo says, when I really admire Rachel's reckless courage. But there are other times when I just want to slap her. Which, you know, maybe not the best choice of, uh, of words there. But it is sort of showing that, like, Rachel has her own coping mechanisms. They are sometimes somewhat brutal. And they have their own weaknesses. Like how you definitely shouldn't fight ten sharks as five dolphins <laughs> as a shark. Although, um, soon after that, they're going down to... Um, they've just gotten uh, away from the hammerhead sharks. And Marcus says, like an idiot, I said, we should go below and see what called them off. And uh, Rachel says, I agree with Marco. Naturally, Marco <laughs> says, naturally, Rachel agreeing with me convinced me I was obviously wrong. <laughs> I like this. Like, she's like the bellwether for, okay, that's maybe too intense. <laughs> that is not a good idea. Okay, so like for all the, the the group relationships are preventing the characters, are stunting their emotional growth, mm-hmm. it's such a great dynamic, right? And like, <laughs> and overall, yeah. they're like a super effective team. It's right? true. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. It was interesting. Um, there was this exchange, Marco says, I guess it's dumb, but once again, I was kind of glad Tobias was in a bad mood. It distracted me from my own thoughts. If I could keep busy teasing Tobias, I didn't have to think about the fact that I was flying closer to where my mother was. Which was an interesting moment of, like, in a lot of ways, what they go through brings them closer together. But this is a moment where, like, I feel like Marco's sort of letting the 
the traumatic nature of this divide them. Yeah. It's like, okay, he's in a bad mood, so I don't have to be, thank goodness. Like, right. It's a sort he's of a misery loves company. Is what yeah. Says. Which is weird because actually it turns out misery just cheers up the other person who's miserable. So it's like, <laughs> one of us gets to be miserable at a time, and now it's Tobias, so I can be cheerful. Conservation of misery. Yeah. I did want to say one other Rachel Markham moment. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That made me very happy, which is during the opening caper that I mm-hmm. think we should very briefly talk about. We should talk about it. It's fun. They're in the storage room waiting to acquire the parrots, and Marco is humming the song from the theme song from Mission Impossible. <laughs> Not idea. And as he hums, have I mentioned Shut Up, Marco? Rachel asked me in a conversational tone. <laughs> the conversational tone just, really made Yeah, it. just have I mentioned Shut Up, Marco? And that's how yeah. I feel about Marco, like, a lot of the time. Oh, so yeah. I really appreciated that line yeah, right yeah, in yeah. chapter one. I'm going to jump back to Tobias for a second. Yeah. One thing that jumped out to me about why he makes fun of Tobias is at this point, he... I, mean, I don't know if Tobias knows this, but Marco really admires Tobias. He mm. he says multiple times how tough Tobias yeah. is and how that Tobias has made this decision to stay in the fight rather than permanently be a human is something that Marco doesn't think that he would be able to do. Yeah. Right. And so he just like says that so is, straight out. Yeah, exactly. So he's like, he doesn't say this to Tobias, right? He says it to us, but that, that's like license to kind of beat him up a little bit because he thinks he's tough enough to take it, right? He, it's he's also not... He, Tobias just had this good thing happen. Tobias is in a good spot. It's okay to... Right, right. Him. But he's like, he's not really bullying him, right? Yeah, it's, no. no. Yeah. yeah, I think he is bullying him because Marco's opinion about Tobias's strength, one, may not be true, and two, <laughs> like, doesn't change what that he's being a jerk. But I do yeah. think I get the No, you're right. Like, he doesn't, but he doesn't but think he of it doesn't that way. Think of it right. That way. He thinks I don't think it's... it affects Tobias that way, really. Like there's a thing where he keeps suggesting the dolphin rodeo and, and well, Tobias says something about it, but like he doesn't sound No, it's like, good. It's good banter. I actually yeah. think it's better. And even back in book three, Tobias appreciated yes. that Marco was still willing to tease him like he teases everyone because Tobias mm-hmm. didn't want people's pity. Right. Yeah. yeah. Again, very similar, not talking about it, but lots of parallels between their mission right. development. Right. Good point. I thought it was interesting and nice in this book that Marco's dealing with this whole thing about his mom. And he's also dealing with like his own relationship with fear, which is not really connected. It was a nice like richness of the emotional tapestry uh-huh. in that it, you know, it could, it could have been kind of one note, like, what do I do about my mom? But no, it's like they're fighting this war. There are all these different things that are being thrown at him. And the, I think maybe the fear is the other side of this, but his, his like anger and kind of rage issues yeah. being the opposite. It's kind of the opposite side of the fear thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the his mom angst is very book five. And there was kind of an underexplore yeah. themed in book 10 about him like getting lost in yeah. the spider morphing things. And well, I feel like too aggressive. In it. Right. Yeah. And I feel like this one had both of those and of, kind of developed both threads. of them. Yeah. 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 He like bolts away from the sharks and yeah, Jake had told them to like retreat, but that's not why he did it. And then he was so like, felt like the others had all seen and were judging him, which first of all, can you really tell which dolphin is which? And second of all, Jake told them to, like, he's, I think he's exaggerating this in his right. mind. And, well, and it's, it's not just fear. It's, I mean, I, I can't diagnose this, but it, he's, he like talks about when he's, he's confronted with the sharks again and he feels like totally trapped. He's like, he remembers back to when he almost got torn in half in book yeah. four. And he's like, I could feel them tearing into my flesh. Like, yeah. it was like my memory was real. So he's having this like post traumatic yeah. flashback type thing. And that's when he runs away. And like, he, and he, um, he doesn't forgive himself until he has that moment later where he like tackles, a, shark, he tackles yeah. a shark and he's like, well, on balance, now that I've done a brave <laughs> thing, I can forgive myself for yeah. being afraid instead of, you know, just 
dealing with the fact that you can be afraid sometimes and that's totally fine. But it makes total sense that in this like group of kids that are fighting this war where they have to do like really dangerous things all the time, like they all kind of have to do it. And so they see each other doing this stuff and they don't see inside each other's minds and so they don't know how afraid they all are. And so they like feel like they can't admit their fear and like their desire to just be cowards to each other. Like they're all reinforcing each other's ideas that like you can't run away from stuff because like practically they kind of can't. Well, right. Certainly not on a mission, right? I guess that's the, you know, I I mean, the, the horrible thing that Jake does when Marco realizes that his mom is Visser One, right? And Jake is like, like Marco. Just hold it together. Yeah, hold it, hold it together, right? Mm -hmm. But he, he had to do that. It was necessary in the moment. And I guess, right, Marco can't afford to start crying in front of Rachel for the first time when they're underwater in a self-destructing facility and Visser Three is outside the window. Yeah. The situation is just really brutal. Yeah. I do want to talk, we talked about this a little bit, but this thing where Marco doesn't want to change. And I think part of this is tied to like, he has these coping mechanisms that are in place and they were in place before the series started because he had lost his mom and that was really tough. And he talked about having to deal with people's pity and how he hated that. And probably he was a like a jokester before that, but like I think that probably exaggerated it and like made it like his role and his this coping well, mechanism. I just and, assumed that he was a he was a happy kid yeah, who was funny was for fun. like yeah. non I'm trying to be like a punk kid who doesn't care about war and climate yeah. change or whatever, right? And then <laughs> yeah. he suddenly is struggling with these emotions and yeah. he represses them right it's all completely he doesn't want to be afraid he doesn't want to be emotional he thinks being emotional is stupid he dreams of the day he can have a long emotional conversation with his mother but he refuses to take down those walls for anyone else even even his dad who's trying to like reach out to him he's really yeah sort of delaying it to this fantasy future where his mom will be free so he doesn't have to deal with his emotions now because he'll talk about them then exactly Uh, but what i was going to say is that like i think that's tied to his desire not to change so we see this whole thing where they've just ridden the roller coaster and he says to jake like we're still our old selves aren't we i mean we haven't changed not really no matter what right and jake's just like sure marco he's like no i mean it i realized i'd grown very serious i didn't i don't know why but i wanted jake to agree with me it was important to me we're still just us nothing that happens can really change what you are right and jake's still like i'm i'm not a philosopher i don't don't ask me these things. And he's, and Marco says, yeah, well, I'm me no matter what. No matter how many morphs, no matter how many battles, no matter what, I'll still be me. Everyone better accept that. And that's the opposite of something we saw from Tobias in book nine, where Tobias is like, none of us are making it through this unscathed. It's like too much fear. And he's just accepted that. Like he has had a very different reaction to his own, like very difficult past. Yeah. And, and he even, he sees himself in the dream. In 13, yeah. He's like, right? he's like, oh, that's not me. Anymore. Totally different person. Right. Yeah. Marco is sort of the opposite end of that spectrum. I wonder where the others fall on that spectrum in terms of recognizing that like this war will change them and like how much they accept that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much we've seen. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting. It'll be anything to watch, I think. Yeah, especially as they have more and more trauma. So this is one thing I wanted to ask. So Gray, uh, in five, you were a little frustrated by the Visser one twist. And you felt like it was undermining Marco's character. And I was like, maybe his character will develop more. Do you feel like we're seeing that in this book? Are you still hoping for more from Marco? I do think we've seen him develop. You know, not always for the better. And I think he's clinging really hard to who he was before the Animorphs. And, and not that he hasn't, not that he's not all in. He's had his elucidation moment. He's in the fight. He's no longer the person who's saying, okay, well, one more and then I'm out of here. But I think he is 
longing for the days before the fight started very reasonably Yeah, <laughs> when they can just ride roller coasters and not have to worry so much about what he's going to do about his mom. And I think I was more okay with the mom part in this. You know, it, it gave him a reason to be where he was in the fight. Like if I were Jake, I would not have sent Marco after his mother. I would have had him be on the diversion team. Yeah. You know, so things well, like that are... Yeah, we can't put that on Jake because Marco's the only one who saw where she was. And when they have the whole go left, go right thing, he's the only one with that information. So I, I yeah. think I think he sort of sets it up so that he can have that moment. Fair enough. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's good that he has that additional motivation. And I certainly am with him in hoping that his mom has survived at the end of this. And that someday in the distant future, they'll all talk about how horrible this was <laughs> together. But one of the things that jumped out, despite him having, he returning to the kind of that fantasy at the end, he has this moment earlier where he's he's sort of like, you know, like, what am I thinking? Like, I, I want to like reach out and talk to my mom, but um, you can't just starve this or one to death and take her host body and live happily ever after. We'd <laughs> yeah. be hunted, right? He's very practical. And it, yeah. And it just, it like, it really just, I don't know, it, it sunk into me. It's like, this is bad. Like, what is, what is the happy ending? You know, like. Mm-hmm. What is it? How could his dream possibly be realized in this like nice, neat way where he and his his mother and father get to sit down and like talk about everything openly, right? And he, you know, he can't talk to his dad because even though he thinks his dad is still a human, he he knows he deep know. down that he's possibly a, a human mm-hmm. controller. And he has this moment of hope too when he sees his mom again face to face, and he says, "Oh, I, I would have been able to tell." If she right. had been a controller. Oh, it's so horrible. Because she's cl- so clearly evil. And then has the realization of, actually, no, it's just that she knows she's among Yerk. She doesn't have to pretend. Yeah. There's and no and we already know. know it was like a year and a half. Yeah. Because of right. what his dad told him. So that, that's why the end to me is like so sad for Marco, despite him choosing hope, is because... I mean, the hope is like, it's the thing that keeps him in the fight that keeps him going. But it's also like, he's supposed to be, he's supposed to be kind of like the realist. But Mm -hmm. what we learn in this book is that the like reality would break him. Right. So he has, he has to live in this fantasy where Viserwan's like probably dead, likely dead. We don't, we don't know, but he's not going to let himself move on. Well, he calls himself a prisoner of hope, which is a really interesting Mm -hmm. phrase in this series where we have seen hope as like the positive, like tagline at the end of like half of the books maybe maybe not quite that many it's been a lot of books and this is a different take on it where like hope is yeah okay it's a good thing it's what keeps you fighting you gotta hold on to this but also it's what keeps them fighting like they are all prisoners of this hope that they can do something against the yerks and if they knew they couldn't they could stop right and that that's would still be bad but in retrospect that's exactly the theme of five right because he says mm. he sees viscer one he's like where there's life there's hope right and that's what so gets them out of it fighting, yeah. but it's the same thing like his dad's ready to move on at the and end of the book yeah. and he can't it feels a little more like okay he ha- he's had his elucidation moment but here we're seeing a much and this moment, I mean, it. it's the kind of moment it, keeping him in the fight. And this fight is so horrible for all of them. And it's wonderful from one perspective that they're doing it, but it's horrible that they have to. Should we talk about that moment where he talks to Mr. One? Yeah. What was your take, Gray? Oh, it was, it was so hard to, so um, it was so difficult to read because we've seen in, uh, was it in six that what it's like to be controlled yeah. from Jake's perspective but what we see here is the Yerk talking about about what the person it's controlling is feeling. Yeah. And it's just awful. So he comes so he comes into her office 
and she says, oh, uh, obviously your host mind is giving you some trouble. I'm sure you are aware that your host body is the biological son of my own host body. Not a shred of emotion, not a shred of guilt. And then the visitor says, you must learn to control your host more completely. My own host is in here creating an awful racket, but I do not let her weeping and wailing disturb me. And it's just so heartbreaking to have. And Marco, of course, like he understands, he recognizes what that visitor is saying. It's saying that his mother's mind and heart were crying from seeing her son made a slave of the Yerks. And he can't communicate with her to say, I'm actually not a controller. I want to try and save you. There's nothing I can do. And there's no way for him to communicate that. And I'm very much thinking about this from his mother's perspective and having maybe herself had hope that he would be safe and free and maybe even happy and that he thought she was dead and maybe now he could be over it. And instead here he is and he's, you know, he's, he's one of her slaves and how completely heartbroken she must be as well as having all of the pain and anguish of being in charge of all of these invading, you know, enemies. It's awful. Can you imagine how, like, that was probably the biggest thing keeping her holding on, like her husband and her son, like the hope that they're free. Right. And, and she, she how even, could he do this to her? We learned in book 10 that she, like, she used her only moment yeah. of freedom to send a message to her husband saying, stay away from the military, right? And, like, even that wasn't enough. But, like, Marco did not have to walk into that office. He didn't have to walk into it in human form. Like, I recognize that there were a lot of emotions going on. He says at one point, he's like, but I don't do stupid emotional stuff. And I was like, you just did. You, I'm like... Did he not think through that, like, oh, no, my mom's going to think I'm a controller. That's going to destroy her and make it so much harder for her to live. He definitely did not think about that at all. Like, I hope he didn't, because if he did, it was incredibly selfish. What a thing to do for, like, no good reason. I mean, I think he doesn't, he's clearly not thought through, but he he has that he wants to cling to that, like, oh, you know, like, she's got those, like, dead eyes. Like, you know, like, I did have a real mother. I did. Right. Which is totally selfish, but yeah, that's yeah. that's like kind of what he wants to get out of it. But so he's he's struggling with his emotions in the whole book, right? And mm-hmm. the thing that kills me about this scene is that he comes in and he has this moment where it's incredibly crucial that he not show any emotion. And Visser One explicitly is like, get it together. You need to control <laughs> that emotional oh, no. human inside you better than you're doing oh, right no. now. And the lesson he takes away from it is he needs to be more ruthless like the Yerks are, right? So it's like, it's it's so horrible. The, like yeah. the, the whole thing reinforces his inability to express his more emotional side. But he does speak up when it counts. Like when Rachel's going to kill Mr. One, he lets them see. He doesn't, you know, go into a whole thing about his feelings and he doesn't want to talk about his feelings after, but he's willing to reveal this thing that, He's been so scared of all of them knowing because he doesn't want them pitying him. So, I mean, that's a, it's a pretty extreme moment. But, like, when the chips are down, he does, like, prioritize his mother's life over his ability to keep his feelings together, which feels like a low bar. But, yeah. I really appreciated in that moment, too, the um, comparison to the sharks. Mm. That was what I liked it. That he says uh, that her eyes are mean, ruthless, pitiless, like the eyes of a shark. No more gentle or sweet than the cold, eerie eyes of a hammerhead shark. And it's like, okay, that's that's a really great point because like the sharks, the yerks are 
not predators, but they're very cold-blooded. They're not. They're better at surviving than humans are. Exactly. Right. And it was a really, and, and he leans into that when he first becomes the shark. And he says there's something about a. The shark brain is like it. superior to the human brain in this way. Right. It's like the cold, uh, cold-blooded focus. It's something like yeah. that. And he says no more fear, no more anger. Mm. It's only hunger and relentless movement forward, right? So (laughs) in this book, what's the title of the book? The Escape. Right. So the escape is the shark. He's got this, he's got this compulsion. That's why he's into the morph, right? And then we've seen Marco lose himself in morphs before. He's horrified by being lost in the ant. And when he's the spider, he, he almost kills and eats, I don't know, something or other on the ground. But then here he's found like kind of the the epitome of all of those things, which is the Although the ruthless shark. He does at some point after that scene, he's like, I you know I felt really over the shark. I, I didn't want to mark a shark again. Like so, I think he does sort of reject that approach. But not before he takes his anguish out by murdering a hammerhead shark. Like after oh, that whole visitor yeah, one scene, he kind of he loses it, and Jake has to like basically you know punch him as a shark mm-hmm. to get him to stop. Mm-hmm. Tearing really one of the, the now innocent, you know, no longer mind-controlled sharks yeah, into yeah, pieces. Yeah. Which leads me to another thing that happens a lot in this book, which is bystanders and property damage. <laughs> that aquarium! <laughs> oh, man! They are well, in an aquarium yep. that is the size of an apartment, the uh, apartment building, something yeah. huge. And I actually really, really enjoyed this scene um, because Axis the lines very, very funny. Yes. Now, this is an interesting human concept, Axe said approvingly. This hologram makes it almost appear that we are under the water. Axe, it's not a hologram, Rachel said. Then we are underwater, protected only by badly made human plastic? Yeah. Why do you humans do things like this? So funny. So they're in this tunnel underneath an aquarium. Millions of gallons of water. Millions of our gallons. Of our gallons. Not Andalite gallons. gallons. Good point. (laughs) And the way that they get out of this situation is Axe cracking through the plexiglass and having all of that water crash down on top of them and on one controller and probably a couple of other guards who might be controllers or might not. There were at least two controller guards, but who also had human bodies. Who die. Yeah, they, who, die. Yeah, they die. They definitely die. Either the Animorphs killed them or Visor 3 killed them for screwing up so bad. Right. But yeah. those are dead guards now. Those they just killed dead. some people have at the aquarium. Have you been in one of those tunnels? Yes, and yes. I hate them. Yeah, they're really scary. You're like, okay, I know that this is safe, presumably, but it's terrifying. No, that doesn't bother me. I don't like heights, but I, I don't mind being in like a glass tunnel. So you're not like Tobias? I'm not like Tobias. Bird. I am. I'd be the opposite of Tobias. <laughs> I would I would probably be, I'm, I guess I'd get used to being a bird, but yeah. I wouldn't yeah. enjoy it right away. I don't like being underwater. I don't like water in my face. I'm very mm-hmm. much a cat. Aquarium's fine. I trust it, but. Mm-mm. You must have loved that part where Marco uh, is drowning and he's trying to swim to safety and then he oh. gets trapped in a tiny little air conditioning vent and then the shark tries to eat him so he has to scoot up out of the water and the shark just keeps like surfacing and it's just waiting for him to get weak enough to fall in it's horrifying i actually hated that less because he is There's at air. least yeah. yeah he's at a level where air is available to him even though it is difficult to get to it's the idea of being under all of that water yep. pressing in yep. among you without ever being able to get nope uh-uh. this is also how i feel about like spaceships when there's like a hull breach or something yeah i don't like it that whole scene was just in the aquarium was horrifying so much property damage yeah there is not that I'm sympathetic to the Yerks, but all of this property damage, they have a huge underwater facility. Okay, well, that's the kind of property damage that should happen. Like, sure. we want to destroy that. That's bad property. A couple things about that. 
Yeah. One, it's still a ton of property damage. True. But that's Although, not intrinsically bad. Well, there were a lot of people down there. That is intrinsically bad. <laughs> they are all dead. Very, yeah. very dead. Lots and lots of dead. Her Bajir body is going to be washing up somewhere. Yeah. Wearing their cute red diving suits. Oh, I love that detail. Very sweet diving suits. That's all. Lots of humans. Dead. Lots yeah. of humans. I mean... All of a sudden, the beach 20 miles away is going to be <laughs> oh a slaughter oh, no. zone. That's you know, horrifying. I bet the Yerks will deal with this. <laughs> They're going to have to do They're, something about it. If they created their like brain chips to dissolve if the facility was destroyed, they would do some cleanup. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's there's going to be quite a bit of cleanup that they're going to need to do. Can you imagine like your, your beach vacation, right? You're sitting mm-hmm. on a towel... You know, your friend's coming out of the water, and then they step on something, and their leg's bleeding, and you look down, and there's just, like, a bunch of hork <laughs> In their right? red diving suits. And then some bug fighters fly down, you get zapped or infested. It's oh, bad. It's all very bad. Never go to the beach. On a totally different note, I would love to talk about Tobias. We see a lot of Tobias in this book. We see him being afraid of the water, which is adorable. And him, like, trying to, like, not admit his fear of the water and just, like, get over it. And then we see the absolutely terrifying, horrifying scene where he has to acquire a dolphin in his hawk body. So he, like, swoops down at the dolphin exhibit at the zoo. But his talons get stuck. And so the dolphin is, like, diving in and out of the water. And he's stuck to its back. And he's afraid of water and in a bird body. It's so bad. And the dolphin it's is, really like, pulling him down under the water. <sighs> he can't do anything about it. He's, like, gonna die. Nightmare. Oh. I did particularly appreciate that while Marco is teasing him about being afraid of water, mm-hmm. Rachel says, hey, how about if we stop busting on Tobias, yeah. okay? If he doesn't Rachel like water, he doesn't have defense to water. Yep. He also, land, he, like, sits on Rachel's shoulder and head, like, at least three times in this yes. book. Yeah. Which... I don't know if Marco's picked up on anything. He yet. hasn't. And there's another from the other direction. Tobias, when they when they've split off at the end, he's like, "We better go check on Rachel and the yes. others." <laughs> I also yeah. Whereas Marco's like Jake. Yeah. I really liked the thing where Tobias is like, "So what do you think Rachel morphed, elephant or bear?" And he he's just like, you know, I wonder what Rachel's morphing out there. And Marco's line is also great, which is, she'd do them both at the same time if she could figure out how, I muttered. <laughs> which is accurate, and I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. So the great thing about Tobias is that he reveals vulnerability before the group about his fear of water. And yeah. they tease him a little bit, but they support him, and he uh-huh. still overcomes it. And then you get to see him say, hey, being a dolphin is actually fun, and I'm, I'm used to it. So yeah. that's great. And like Marco <laughs> just goes right over his head, you know, like it wouldn't be so bad. It just, it wouldn't be so bad to say, you know what? I'm kind of scared of sharks. Just yeah. going to put that out there. And then everyone's going to be like, yeah, sharks are scary. We're all scared of sharks, buddy. Like you don't but have to worry about it. that wouldn't be his role in the group. Ugh. Yeah. He's really trapped. I also love, so Tobias survives because Marco bonks him as a seagull and, <laughs> and knocks him loose. Um, and when they're all flying away or whatever, Cassie is super concerned about the well-being of the dolphin. And it's yeah. like, yeah, you know, it looked like the talons didn't go too deep. They'll probably give it preventative antibiotics just to be safe. <laughs> and Tobias is like, great. I'm so happy the dolphin's going to be okay. And Mark was like, is that sarcasm? And Tobias is like, I'm going to be sarcastic until further notice. <laughs> I love that 
airlines so it. much. He was just so open about, listen, I'm kind of traumatized by this whole situation. <laughs> I reserve the right to be sarcastic. <laughs> the, other, the other great line from that scene is, as soon as Tobias is diving out of the sky towards the dolphin, Cassie goes, um, is this stupid? <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> the so answer many is, of the yes. things they do. So I also, there are two other Tobias things that I loved. One was that he controls the shark mind the best because oh, yeah. he's so used to being a predator, as we theorized in book 13, bears out. And also when he's flying with Axe and Marco and they both like injure themselves, he's like, Ugh, this is the last time I'm like flying around a building with you amateurs. That was also very funny. <laughs> great. So there were, this is two books in a row where we've seen the Yerks trying to take over animals. I'm just wondering, Gray, do you think this is going to happen a lot more? And what do you think is the next animal the Yerks will try to take over? I hope they stop. It doesn't seem to be going well. <laughs> but here, they can make they can make sharks smart enough to host Yerks. Mm-hmm. Actually, interesting side note that now we've answered a question about the horses yeah. thing, that there is kind of a Somewhere hierarchy of horses. intelligence, yeah. right? You need to have the right kind of structures access. So you can also add voice modulators mm-hmm. to various animals. Sure. Yeah. Um, you have sort of this pleasure pain control chip thing. So let your imagination run wild. Yerks have a lot of tools. There are a few things that we learn in this book. X says, Cassie has shown me pictures of the internal structure of a shark. There's no room in that brain for a yerk. The structures would never support a yerk. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? <laughs> it just, it, the thing about this is that it doesn't make any damn sense. And it doesn't have to, but also it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry, Grace, that you have to struggle with this. I find it both very entertaining and very frustrating that like, oh yeah, sharks are too primitive. Okay, a couple things about that. One, it's like the morphing, I think, in a lot of ways that there's a certain level of intellect that makes morphing easier. Gorillas, parrots in this one, dolphins. And then there are some morphs, like the shark, where it's more primitive. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw that with the shark. I think we saw it with the crocodile, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the, it was the sort of the really, really old, strong predator mind where, like, it's just been effective for so long. Right. It needed to change. And I think maybe then what I'm extrapolating from that is it actually might be possible to predict what animals the Yerks would be able to infest hmm. based on how their brains feel in morph. So uh-huh. I imagine dolphins would be much easier for them to infest. Yeah, yeah. Much smarter than horses. A lot of primates. A lot of primates. Whales, probably. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe parrots. <laughs> parrots yeah. seem very smart. But do you think that they will try to, like, what's, what would be your guess? Because, like, they'd also have to have a reason, right? Like, to invade a secret military facility. Sure, or take over Lyra. Take over Lyra. I mean, we're just making up. <laughs> I mean, we by we, I mean Applegate is just making up motivations at this point. <laughs> Lyra, we've never heard of before. Yeah, but now I'm thinking it's interesting that they've sort of realized that there's some potential. Uh-huh. Like at least Visser One, who seems to be a little cleverer than the average year, uh, yeah, has realized, hey, Earth animals, they have some variety. Yeah. You know, we keep throwing the taxons into the oceans of Lyra, <laughs> and they just explode on contact with anything, right? So why don't we just use some of these sharks? We'll just smarten them up and then. Here you go. You know, maybe it's unclear why, like, they don't use dolphins. Like, it seems like they'd probably be just as effective. Fighting, they don't really have like teeth to the same extent, do they? Yeah, I don't know. Like, sharks are way more brutal than dolphins. I guess. At least in this book. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good. What about a killer whale? Yeah, I mean that would be easier. Maybe there aren't as many. There aren't that many whales. Yeah. 
I guess there's still a lot of whales. But you're some, they must be there's, able to clone things. There's a long you know? tradition of like transporting whales through space and sci-fi. So, right. Yeah. Okay, so to answer the question, mm-hmm. I think that there are another 40-odd books in this series. Mm-hmm. Probably there's going to be some more uh, Yerks trying to get into animals. Yeah. I have no idea for what reason. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and suggest that it's going to be... Okay, they've done horses. They've done sharks. Let's go with frogs. Frogs. Yeah. Okay. Frogs. Makes perfect sense. Or I some kind of insect. Insect. Yeah. I want a different. Whoa. Um, so we've done mammals. So you're gonna try to put a put a yurk inside an insect? Yeah, they're gonna get some little like tiny tiny brain boxes to put on top of. Oh my gosh. Okay. okay. This I is gonna know. be great. So speaking of frogs, yeah. What did you think of the Lyran? The Lyran. So the Lyrans are a sentient race of amphibians that are psychic, so they can mm-hmm. read minds within a close range. It is unclear what that range is. And it would be super helpful to have them around because they would instantly know if someone were a controller. Also very embarrassing to have around, as Axe <laughs> points out. Well, that sure. was amazing. I was like, I feel like Axe really, like, first of all, it's amazing that the Andalite homeworld actually doesn't allow Lyrans. I'm going to bet it's not for the embarrassment factor. I bet it's because the Andalites have a lot of secrets they wouldn't want other species to know. That's what Axe says. Yeah. He does sort of admit that, but like he seems to think, oh, but it's mostly because they're embarrassing, as opposed to like, I don't know, I was thinking about Serenity, where like the fact that there were these psychic like people who were exposed to government officials meant that like the hugest security breach, we have to go and eliminate them all, they know about this horrible secret. Like I'm picturing that kind of thing happening. In uh, the Andalite homeworld, maybe they find out about the quantum virus. Maybe they spread it around the galaxy. No one trusts Andalites anymore if they did before. I just want to know what the Lyran society is like. Unless they're immune from their own psychic thing. It just must be, really, they seem, must be really weird. It must be weird. And the, the Lyran that we meet doesn't seem particularly weird. I don't know. What would make it weird? Well, I, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's like an amphibious, sentient alien. It's like... A- Though, interestingly, the way that it's, its psychicness is not as useful as thought speak because when there's this whole bit where like the Lyran steps up behind Marco and Visser one's talking to Marco and the Lyran is like, um, excuse, well, it says it in Lyran, <laughs> excuse me, but this isn't an Andalite, it's a human. And the Visser is like, you idiot, that's a gorilla. <laughs> there's a difference. And the Lyran is like, um, and then Marco punches it and knocks it out. Okay, Marco, there are so many security problems in this book. Buddy, you needed to kill the Lyran. Valerian knows who you are. Yeah, and Valerian Valerian is the one who went for Visser 1 right at the end. I understand that you can't kill your mom, but kill Valerian. Don't walk into Visser 1's office for no reason. I feel like that also, that was an interesting moment because, like, it was such a weird, like, operational choice. And I think if if Rachel or Jake had been with Marco and, like, his half of the team, he wouldn't have just been able to do that. Like, I think if one of the more, like, putting themselves forward personalities had been there. Mm-hmm. That would yeah. not have gone over. So why did Jake divide them the way he did? Why did he I want to get Gray's take on that. I have a theory. Okay. Why do you think he divided them up like that? Well, I think it's because he wants Axe and Marco to get together. Because <laughs> 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 he knows that Marco has such strong feelings about him as evidence in this book. And yes, and he is shipping Axe and Marco. <laughs> but he could have gone with Axe and Marco, but he needed to go with Cassie. Yes. Because he always has to go with Cassie. What's your actual theory? <laughs> Um, they're doing this subtle work. So Axe, Tobias, and Marco are the Taxons. And <laughs> Rachel, oh, Cassie, horrifying. and Jake are the Hork-Bajir. Okay, they but do Cassie... the They do the, the, the 
In the wolf one? Grunt work. Yeah. But, like, Cassie is not very aggressive. Like, she wouldn't really be the best choice for that. Like, I would put Marco with the um, subtle work. Not when they're clever. in work. No, because he's, yeah, when yeah. when they're in work. And Ca- Cassie's much more, like, she's a, I feel like she's a, a solid soldier. At least yeah. the way she's portrayed. Yeah. But, like, she, so she's Marco. not. He, like, punches things but up. But she's not up for, like, a sneaking mission. That, that's, no, that's, that's not true. in her she's personality. She's also not sneaky, yeah. But I do feel like Jake knew what was up. He should have gone with Marco. Well, so there's another thing, which is how much is Jake setting up Marco to kill Visser 1? And so, like, if that's a thing that's going to happen, I guess then he should have sent Rachel and Marco if you wanted yeah, that to happen. Yeah, that's true. But also, like, if Visser 1 has to die, does he want Marco to do it? Maybe if someone else does it, Marco can't, can, can never, like, forgive that other person. Well, but- Jake even says at one point, like... It's your cho- it's your call, right? Yeah, yeah he would want to be able the... to make the call about Tom. He lets Marco make the right, call about his right. Name. That's a good point. Can I just ask my one question about the Lirans real fast? Only one, though. Oh, yeah. Which is that they have not taken, the years have not taken over Liren. Well, sorry, was oh. the planet called Liren? Did I get it wrong? You did get it wrong. It's oh, darn it. It should be called Lyra. Why is it not called Lyra? I, I Our planet isn't called humans. <laughs> it's called Huma. Okay, so then it should... <laughs> funny space convention the planet is like always named the same as the species and like so now we know stuff. the name of the Yurka and Andalite homeworlds are Andalicia and Yurka <laughs> well they're not Yurkins and Andalicians <laughs> so my question is there's this one Liren who's hanging out with this or one is this a an abomination situation mm-hmm. where oh. there's like one Liren who's helping them out I mean it, it seems more like this or Lyra yeah how <laughs> I doubt happen? it. I bet it's like they're failing at the subtle invasion, but like Lyrans don't seem as tough as Andalites. Like Andalites have like really tough security, and also they're all bladed and really intense. Yeah. So like I can see how like they could catch at least a few Lyrans by force. Sure, but then you know if if every other Lyran around them immediately knows that that Lyran right, there's no infiltration potential. Yeah. Then you'd just lock them up for three days. And out <laughs> right, but so they're planning open war. They might have already begun. Like it's yeah. yeah. I just thought that was interesting. There's just the it is possible. So what I was saying before about the way the Lyran talks, it has this kind of interesting language or whatever. But then the Lyran language is psychic mm-hmm. in that it automatically is translated in the language of the people hearing it. So Marco, so like, convenient. it gets translated in his head or whatever. But it's not as useful as thought speak, where you can, like, email someone. What The Lyran yeah. says it and Marco can understand. It would be much more... Yeah. Convenient if the Lyran could psychically just say to Visser One, Ahem, human. Um, so I thought <laughs> that was really interesting. Less interesting for us. Less so. interesting for us, yeah. Yeah. Would you like to uh, read the Lyran for us? Oh, yeah. I want to hear what the Lyran sounds yeah. like. Um, uh, ooh. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, do I have to burp this? Um, <laughs> yes, you do. Atumak el kasu fatoli. And then in your mind you heard, don't be fooled, Visser One. This is no Andalites. That is what I heard in my mind. Yes, That's I true. did. Good job, um, done. Well done. Can I also read um, Marco when he's turning into a, uh, a dolphin and he falls into the water? Um, <laughs> yes, he turns do. He turns into a dolphin from the feet up. So he has this amazing mermaid tail. Yeah. And he tries to say, good grief, I'm a mermaid. But since he's fallen face first into the water, all anyone else heard was, bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> This is such a good element of our podcast where Ted reads the voices. It's one of my favorite things. I love it. My one other quick thing is that 
Hey, remember how in earlier episodes we've said it would be great if anyone read Peter's Evil Overlord list? Yeah. One part of that is do not install a self-destruct button. <laughs> don't do it. Okay. Oh, wait. But the great thing about the self-destruct button is they do this whole elaborate <laughs> hacking thing. They set the thing to self-destruct. The thing says, I'm self-destructing. Thank you. Have a nice day. And then <laughs> Visser nice 1 successfully day. turns it off. But all they had to do was break a window in order to <laughs> destroy the entire place. With a chair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Axe was so snobby about the human plexiglass, but this is just as bad. It's it's bad. Also, they probably made it with human plexiglass. Yeah. And the other thing about that is, um, you know how I was saying a bunch of bodies are going to wash up on shore? Yeah. There's also a bunch of alien plasticine and... Again, they're going to get rid of that. Straight to Zone 91. office chairs. <laughs> Speaking of evil overlords, though. They have the tails, the holes for the work with your tails. That's what makes them evil alien That's tails. Speaking of evil alien overlords, what do you mm-hmm. think of Visser 1? She's better organized than Visser 3. She's yeah. got a better plan than Visser 3. She's a great villain. She's really badass. Marco yeah. talks about how she like swaggers around like she owns the place. Mm-hmm. And then she like emerges into this room full of chaos where there's a grizzly bear and a tiger mm-hmm. and a wolf fighting hork and she's just walking calmly through it and starts <laughs> kicking hork to make yeah. them get up and help her right totally fearless yeah, that's like so so, so intimidating and scary and then she's face to face with marco and gorilla morph and she's just like if you surrender now i'll let you live right <laughs> it's not not trying to like plead and get out of it you know like no stupid jokes like mr three yep, would be doing or yep. gloating or anything right mm-hmm. she still has there's like marco kind of laughs at them because viscer <laughs> while the battle is raging viscer three comes out of the water in gross yellow giant snake form mm-hmm. and they then they start insulting each other and Marco's like politicians am I right these guys just hate each other so that's a little bit silly that Visser 1 will stoop to Visser 3's level but still on the whole she's a much more intimidating villain do you think she's dead no why would you think that there's no body (laughs) we have seen this with her before exactly we haven't talked about the moment in the swimming pool where Marco is morphing into shark in the swimming pool, which he recognizes as dumb, but he's like, if I don't do it here, I'll do it somewhere even stupider, like my own bathtub. Which, like, I understand. He's having some impulse control problems. So he's morphing to shark in the swimming pool, and these two guys from the swim team show up and, like, start bullying him, and they're clearly jerks. And he's already partially morphed, and he, I guess, has, like, like his legs are sort of morphed, and he has teeth already and he just like keeps staring at this one guy's neck and he really wants to like tear it out mm-hmm. it's right. really intense i mean the guy is provoking him and they're talking hard. about oh you've you've been so sad since your mom died right yeah. so it's really pushing his buttons. and one was like i bet she just ran off with some guy and right. he's like staring at the guy's neck which would be so creepy so creepy i mean well, so- i have no sympathy for the bullies but can you imagine bullying somebody and have them just stare at your neck the whole time like <laughs> That's terrifying. And then the bully, the, the bully victim's friend shows up and is like, don't do it. They're not worth it. And you're like, what's going on? I thought we were bullying this kid. So he's got this, like, these violent urges that he doesn't really, like, reflect on them in the same way that he reflects on, like, being a comedian and his role in the group yeah, and stuff. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And so to me, what I got out of this whole thing, and it, like, it culminates with him, he, he morphs the shark and it's kind of like an escape from his emotions. And then at the end, after their confrontation with... Visser 1 and they destroyed the the whole facility 
that's when he kind of like goes into a rage and starts tearing apart one of the, the yeah, normal sharks, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So there's that moment just before when, so you said earlier, when the chips are down, he manages to stop Rachel from killing yeah. Visser One, but then moments later, uh, Visser One uh, wakes up and has a, a oh, dracon yeah. beam and he's, he's, about to, he's about to shoot Rachel. And so Marco picks up a chair and he has this thing of like, I don't know what I, I think I was trying to throw it at Visser One, but I missed and I broke the window. Maybe right? he meant to miss. It's hard. Well, to right. Maybe that. he meant to miss, but it's also kind of like it's he, he doesn't say it, but to me, I read it as his instinct was I have I have to kill her. I have to save Rachel. Right. Yeah. Like so, yeah. he's 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 willing to go there. Right. Yeah. The circumstances of the book let it kind of continue, but mm-hmm. he's kind of like he's willing to do this terrible, violent thing, mm-hmm. and then Which, immediately afterward, he loses it, and he kind of yeah. like starts tearing apart this innocent shark, right? And so I feel like this, the pool thing happens after his shark dream. Yeah, oh yeah, um, it's one of those feelings dreams they're always having. Yeah, but so the the shark dream is like, he's like, I had a dream, this is before he, he morphed shark. He's like, I had a dream and I, I was the shark and I kept, like, I was doing something terrible, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't remember what the terrible thing was, but I was doing something terrible. And he, I think he hears a woman's voice uh, saying, help me, mm-hmm. help me. And then sometimes she's saying, help him, yeah, help yeah. him. So to me, it's like, it's like the thing that is weighing on his mind that he isn't willing to think about that explicitly is like whether or not he has it in him to kill his mother. Right. And that's, the, that's again, the other side of the where there's life, there's hope thing. Right. Yeah. If she's dead, he can Done. move on. Yeah. But also he might have to be the one to kill her. We've seen, so Jake had these dreams and it was about his brother and it was really similar theme, Mm -hmm. like where Mm -hmm. he might have to destroy his brother and in doing so he was going to like destroy himself. And then Cassie had this dream about like being a coward and letting someone else get taken instead of her. Mm -hmm. And they're all about like the fear of having to do terrible things. And it's like that part of, you know, you can get trauma from things that are done to you and also from things that you do. And we're, I mean, I think it's kind of a mix of both in this, but like these dreams seem to be very much about like things they might have to do. Right. And, and the, the help him, like he knows subconsciously that he needs help, right. That that he's suffering for it, but he's not able to admit it to himself or anyone else. Do you want to talk about the opening caper? My only (laughs) comment on the opening caper is once again, this is a very dumb plan because first of all, you how are, are they going to get out of this? How are you going to get out of the cages? <laughs> You're currently in cages. And we don't parrots. see how they get out of it. But just we just kind of hand waved away. The other parrots are currently in a cupboard. Cassie says it's fine. Just waiting <laughs> for someone to find them. What are they going to do? The, the with the parrots? Cafe. What are they going to do with these the parrots? The Amazon Cafe. My apologies. The Amazon how cafe. dare you say that about the rainforest uh. cafe? <laughs> now they just have a bunch of parrots. What are you going to do? Like, are they going to... That's a good question. Sell them to a... Give them to the zoo? Hopefully Cassie adopts them and sets them free or something. Where um, free? She goes back to the Amazon. Well, but the, so the best thing is they're all... So they're just... The plan is they the parrots say horrible things. You know, mm-hmm. like... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Squawk botulism. <laughs> um, but then... But it's so delightful. You get like pages of the parrots saying these horrible things and people were like, they're like, oh God, I can't eat here. And then one of the parrots says, we should be flying free in our native habitat, which is obviously Marco's like, I thought that was a little wordy for a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part of that actually was the, the morphs. Like it was a really cool morph. Mm. 
because they all the parrots are so brightly colored and the animals all their bodies turned the colors of the feathers mm -hmm. before anything else really changed and then and then my face simply exploded outward my entire face just sprout my teeth my lips my nose my chin all Our bulged out like they were made of silly putty and someone was sticking their fist through from behind what a great the skin image. the skin that had been my cheeks and lips turned hard hard as old fingernails my huge ridiculously large parrot beak was forming it was the color of old man fingernails <laughs> yuck yeah, no, the only one that's really bothered me was the mold. <laughs> what about when he becomes a hammerhead shark and when his the eyes extend, they're like yeah, pillars, pillars of, flesh of flesh growing beneath his eyeballs. Uh, well, I mean, it's not great. Also, he get, <laughs> Rachel achieves her uh, final form. He, he <laughs> looks at all the other animorphs and sees a hideous Rachel with a shark mouth and blonde hair. <laughs> so many teeth. Just infinite <gasps> teeth. So many teeth. Yes, good point. I did not mention this earlier, but... I called a lot of aspects of this plot. You predicted it so well. The mom, that it was going to be the mom again. Uh -huh. Yeah, yep. they were going to be offshore doing facility. something offshore. Yep. So, Jenny, you were really like, is it underwater or not? And Gray would not commit to underwater. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not and one of the other things that I predicted that I was correct about was how gross the hammerhead shark morph was going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about yep. that. I was like, yeah. mm -hmm, that's yes, disgusting. Yeah. So we did, we had a lot of 90s references in this one, which we usually do in a Marco book. Lunchables. You look really excited, right? It was the one that was my very favorite thing that has happened so far. Well, not maybe, but a thing that I very much loved, one of my favorite 90s references of any of these books was Dive On In. It's hammerhead time. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so uh, hard. It's good. It's good. So good. I really um, liked where Marco ha was able to write his like paper in English on the bus because he was writing it by hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, it was on Lord of the Rings because mm -hmm. Abigail is obsessed. She also is really into Star Trek. Yeah. You get a Captain Kirk on the bridge chair reference mm -hmm. with uh, Mr. One. There were two more music references that were great. Mm -hmm. uh, one was when Marco's talking about how he can find the funny side of anything. He says, you say, isn't it terrible about global warming? I say, no, it's funny. We're going to bring on global warming because we ran too many leaky air conditioners. We used too much spray deodorant, so now we'll be doomed to sweat forever. That's not sad. That's irony. Note to Alanis, <laughs> that is ironic. <laughs> so good. Really yes. amazing. And then the other one, which uh, is a song that I now sing in my head, is a reference to Olivia Newton-John. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, my God. <laughs> where, uh, as they are going to turn into dolphins. Is it the dolphin side? Yep. They're turning into dolphins. Uh, Marco sings, let's get fishical, fishical. <laughs> Hilarious. I really enjoyed with the global warming thing. I mean, I don't enjoy anything about global warming, but the fact like it's it's already a thing, people are already aware of it. Get it together world we've known for a really long time. But also that it was global warming and not climate change because mm -hmm. we were still in the Well it was hole in the well, ozone yeah. layer. Right. Yeah. He's worried about the ozone layer. Yes. Which is like yes. different set of concerns. But you know what's still relevant? We should really get on that. Mm -hmm. The Rainforest Cafe. I'm sorry, the Amazon Cafe was a great reference yeah <laughs> i had there was a rainforest cafe in uh near where i grew up yeah from 2000 to 2009 i looked it up it closed in 2009 <laughs> i, I assumed the, it was gone but still around i don't know i think it must yeah. still be around somewhere Probably. um but i don't know do they have them uh in massachusetts uh 
I remember seeing some when I was a kid, but okay. I don't know if I saw. I don't know if since there's one in New York. Okay, so they're still there. There was a thing where the parrots were like getting poked by cigarette butts because people were probably allowed to smoke indoors. Mm-hmm. There was a kid saying that Howard Stern rolls. Oh yeah, that was yeah. Like, there was uh, Evander Holyfield showed up and also Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who is Evander? I think he is a boxer. Okay. He appeared in paper cutout form or cardboard cutout form in an episode of Friends, if I remember ah, correctly. Okay. So that is very 90s. Good boxer job. from 84 to 2011. All right. There was the Mission Impossible theme song. Also, a Dilbert reference. Really well done, Onomatopoeia on the Mission Impossible theme song. <laughs> it, I, I was just like, "Is yeah. this the Mission Impossible theme song?" And then it—that's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember what the theme song sounded like, it's but I assumed that's what it was. Dun 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 dun. Yeah, it's just dun yes, dun okay. with commas. I remember that. And then it's dee 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 da dum. Written out like that. That's great. It's yeah, it's really good. I have I have a couple things. One of the things we didn't quite get into is that uh, when they when they sort of like don't kill Visser one, yeah. So Visser three, he almost gets torn in half by Rachel, and then uh. he slithers away outside the base to sulk, and then goes to <laughs> Visser one's office and is just peering in through the window, <laughs> right? For some reason, so he's just in this giant gross snake morph peering in through the window, and then he sees the Andalite bandits let Visser 1 live, uh-huh, right? Which uh-huh. is like, they're like, ooh, maybe this will be some like drama later. Oh, yeah. But then Marco throws the chair and breaks it open and Visser 3 just gets sucked <laughs> in along with all the water and it's like, there's this weird physical comedy bit. It's totally bizarre. I was so annoyed that, okay, so there was this like sequence where Visser 3 is a snake and he gets axe in his mouth. Like he just like takes axe entirely in his mouth. And he's a very big snake for context. And Rachel, as a grizzly bear, like gets him around the middle and is like, I will tear you in two if you hurt him. And then Visser's like, well, we gotta stand still. And then Marco punches him in the nose. And he slithers into the water, like barely conscious. And I was like, you couldn't manage to kill him while he was slithering into the water, barely conscious. Like, come on, guys. I realize there's a lot going on. Kill Visser you- 3. I'm gonna make buttons. At that point, he's defenseless, and you can't kill a defenseless creature. No, unless that is not true. Not a you can. You can kill Visser 3. I want a button that says kill Visser 3. Yeah, let's make buttons. Done. Okay. We'll put them in our store. Another our, thing is... Um, we got them shirts. So the mechanics, we learned something about morphing mechanics with these brain implants, right? Yeah. So they get they get these control chips implanted into their brains. Mm-hmm. They are able to demorph everyone, including Tobias. But when they try to morph flies... It's incredibly painful because the implants are still inside their physical bodies. So even though they're morphing, the when the flies get small enough, they're just going to like kill themselves. They're going to explode because the the chip can't fit inside them, right? So what does that mean in terms of like piercings or like oh. other things, other like physical things that can like be inside a your body and you have like an implant or a yeah pacemaker. yeah a pacemaker yeah. you know like a metal plate somewhere oh. reinforcing you know part of your body would i guess if you have that in your original form you can probably preserve it in z space the same way you can preserve clothes yeah right exactly. but if you didn't think about it maybe not right that well, would be then, bad but then but, why doesn't that stay in z space with your original yeah you would think no, but but it's it's something you acquire while in morph, right? Yeah. So like, could you put like a a metal collar on one of the anamorphs when they're in like a dog morph, and then they wouldn't be able to morph back because it would you know oh, choke no. them or something, right? Like, yeah, presumably. 
You know, like when Cassie's stuck in that wooden log, right? Right. In, in yeah. book nine, right? So they're like, I think it would be. I guess if you get handcuffed, thing. right? If you get handcuffed yeah. while in a small morph, you might not you be could, able to get out, right? Oh yeah, I was gonna say if you're handcuffed while human, you could probably morph like grizzly bear and just like tear through those things. But if you're handcuffed while like a badger, right, which is a great image, um, oh, you might not. <laughs> there's like four of them. The poor badger. <laughs> yes, it's like it looks like the tops of like the plastic things around soda oh, cans. No. It's like the four That's things so in the sad. badger's paws are in it. You probably couldn't morph out. Or like, yeah, if Tobias got caught and tagged, right? Oh, like, oh no, Cassie would take care of it for him. That's true. He'd fly to Rachel's house. Rachel bring Cassie. Anyway, right. this has me like really worried about other terrible things that can yeah. happen to the animals. Yeah, they're also Marco uh, is thinking about morphing into the trout, and <laughs> he wonders if he'll be able to retrieve that morph because he hasn't done it in a while. Oh, oh yeah, interesting. And yeah. he doesn't successfully morph a trout. Well, so. he doesn't try. Right, but new and worrying. Maybe you lose it after a while. Yep, use it or lose it. We haven't talked about the scene where Marco is lying in his bed listening to Bob Marley. Uh, (laughs) No mother, no cry. Yeah, and he like has his headphones up really high, and he's like screaming like "I'm too young to deal with any of this" or something like that. And his and he looks over, and his dad is standing there, and it's so sad. And his first reaction is paranoia. Yeah, he's like, I. his dad's like, um, if there's something wrong, you can tell me. And he's like, I could tell my dad. Like, I kind of wanted to tell my dad. But, like, the, the paranoia is compounding his own impulse to, like, not talk to people. And, like, maybe even if he hadn't had the paranoia, he would have been like, oh, but we don't do that. We don't talk about that stuff. But, like, oh, the one time maybe he was willing to talk about something, he can't because he doesn't know his dad is a controller. Right. Get a Lyran. Bring it home. Oh. Find out if your dad is a controller. <laughs> talk to your father. Where is he going to get a Lyran, the only one there is a controller? Well, that's, it is interesting that the Animorphs don't go on the offense. Like, now that they know about Lyrans, they're like, why don't we kidnap a Lyran? Yeah, that's true. They managed to they managed to rescue Jake. So, like... See what happens if you grab it in this underwater battle and acquire it. Do you get to be psychic? Oh. That's really fun. They should totally acquire Whoa. Lyrans. Whoa! That is the worst plot hole. They should have thought yeah. of that. Well, okay, but they would have been... Axe could have. Yeah, Axe that's the problem. Axe could have done it. That's or Tobias. Axe or Tobias could have done it. Well, you had two of them. They didn't. They didn't do it. Okay. Wow. I'll forgive them because they weren't, they didn't have a good opportunity. It was, it was very hectic. Yeah. But still. But they don't even really consider that. it. They don't even consider it. Gray, you should have been an anamorph. You should have been an anamorph and a yerk. You would have been really a big help to either oh side. Gosh. I'm just saying. Gray versus Gray. Oh. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> the movie event we've all been Maybe she's for. the Elvis. And Elvis. And Elvis. Right. You're, oh, no, you're, you're the too, darker you're, you're the darker power. <laughs> you're on the other side. That's why you hate the Elvis so much. Oh no, oh no. It's just your prejudice. Wow. Okay. No, that's not so it. Don't tell it. No, it's an eye. That's I'm not it. I'm eating Android. And Grey is the Elvis enemy. Dark evil power. So what are you, makes, Ted? It just makes me think of you, Ted. Every morning you just like robot out of bed and sit down and then mechanically Scoop That's exactly Wheaties it. Into okay. your Android mouth. So, Wheaties side note: I was visiting my sister this weekend, and I mentioned this thing where you guys have this theory. She's like, "No, I'm pretty sure it's just because it's what our dad ate." And I was like, "Yes, that is accurate." <laughs> is your dad an animal? <laughs> I like that she's persuaded by her theory. That's great. No, no, she she wasn't. She she thought that the reason that I eat Wheaties. No, she but she her she was open to it. She oh, considered okay. it. Yes, yeah. But I had forgotten. I was like, I guess that's what my mom bought. But she bought it because that's what my dad had every morning. And that's uh-huh. why I started having it. So 
What's your dad's name? <laughs> Jake, by any means. <laughs> it's Jay. Totally different name from Jake. Uh huh. Yes, yeah, completely Wait, different. Definitely one other, one other Jake note. I'm surprised you haven't jumped on this already, Jenny. We get another update about Jake's size. Oh, I do have it in my notes. The bullies. Yes. You know, they're really they call they call Marco Marco Roni, <laughs> which is great. Which is a pretty great name to insult Marco with, but they don't have anything for Jake. Even as bullies, they just say, Big Jake, he's yeah. he's a big guy. Yeah. I mean, I think they even said, I didn't write it down, but they're like, oh, it's Big Jake, the one who's bigger than 5'2". <laughs> <laughs> well, or what if there's also small Jake, who's like still four feet tall? <laughs> That's true. It's just that there are two Jakes at the school, and there's Big Jake and small Jake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it's ironic, because there's another Jake who's like six feet tall. <laughs> And they call him so it's really cutting to call him Big Jake. Yeah. I just, I find it so hard to imagine this this group of teens. Like, Rachel says she's tall for her age, maybe tall for any age. I think she's, like, 5'9 or something, you know. Like, I can't imagine, like, that everyone is at least seven inches shorter than her. That would just look so ridiculous. I think Jake is probably, you know, she might be taller than him because he's only 13. Mm-hmm. I think the 5'2 thing is just one of those facts that we have to erase from our minds. Like the line about the <laughs> 80s in Andalite Chronicles. <laughs> well, also, it didn't say that he... Yeah, it didn't say he was 5'2. That no, was just, I just made that, that up. That was crazy extrapolation <laughs> from Eric being 5 feet tall. So, it's something that I noticed. It's probably too early to judge the books for this. But mm-hmm. we have had, over the past several books, we only get the like serious like war stories from the point of view of the male Animorphs. I was thinking about that. Because we ha- we've had now two Cassie books and one Rachel book yeah. that are pretty light. Or like, you know, the Cassie in Nine, it's fairly yeah. emotional or whatever. But yeah. still the way it resolves with like the skunk and everything is true. a little sillier than things overall. But we get the chi and the kind of like horrors of violence yeah. with Marco. We get this. Okay, but the jungle is kind of... Maybe yeah, so maybe the jungle, maybe the jungle yeah. is a good example. But I, I feel know. like especially the last two are like really kind of like light and fluffy. Well, and so I think there's a pattern with Cassie books where it goes light, serious, light, serious, light, serious. So we'll see how that goes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the end four was a little lighter. I was gonna say four, 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 four and seven. And seven is like a really big, serious, really meaningful intense. book for Rachel. Yeah. But I don't know if Rachel has exactly the same pattern. I don't think she does. I was just thinking about Something you said really early on, Gray, about Marco, that he has this, like, uh, angst built into his backstory, which, mm-hmm. in your view, was, like, a very male character way, and that the the girls didn't have as much of that kind of, like, inherent, that inherent yeah. tragedy in, what, in what's going on with them. And so I was wondering if that, just because of the way those characters are based on those archetypes, if that's kind of why we're seeing they can get away with the yeah. sillier stuff. In the girls' books, well, it's something yeah, to keep an eye on. Marco yeah. and Tobias are the only ones who really get the intense backstory, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so you do have a couple of male characters who don't have it, but you don't have any female characters who do have it. And we do, yeah, see the girls with these fluffy books. It'll be interesting to see if we get any fluffy books that are yeah, like a truly silly, a truly mm-hmm. silly Tobias book would be a wonder to behold. Ooh, yeah, I'm actually. We'll, we'll just have to see how it shakes out. We'll see. Yeah. We'll have to see. Yeah, it's yeah. a good point. I have one more thing. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I found another piece of supporting evidence for my essay that I'm going to write about this book. Oh, um, this is gonna. This book has so much in it. It's going to be a great essay. It's, it's really good. It's really good. So, so when he's talking about he he has this whole thing. I think it's after his dream. He's thinking his emotions are like his weakness, and he's kind of admiring his more cold and calculating side. And this is building up to when he wants to be a shark. And one of the <laughs> things that he 
admires when he becomes a shark for the first time is that it knew what it wanted. And there's a terrible strength in knowing what you want and having no doubts. And to me, this kind of, again, connects to his like really internal struggle about what is the choice he will make about whether his, he believes his mother is alive and whether he's willing to kill her. Yeah. And it, it, the fact that he he's so drawn to that, I guess, slither inside of himself, <laughs> right, at the end of the day. It's like, that's, that's the Marco who he thinks he needs to be and he doesn't yeah. want to change from, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to be the softer emotional version. He wants to be the super realistic, rational, willing to make the yerkish, ruthless decisions person. Yeah, although he's complex. I'm not sure that's consistently what he wants. But we do see that reflected in his opinions of his friends also. Like he says at the beginning, he really admires Tobias for making this choice. And that's sort of, you know, he has made this choice. He's decided what he wants. And and I think with Rachel, he is kind of not willing to give her credit for that. And he, he also says that thing about Jake. He's like, Jake's a hero. Jake's, Jake knows what's right. And he does it. Or at least he thinks he knows what's right. And he does it. And he's like, I think he envies this in several of his friends that like he has all these doubts. Yeah, but to me, it, it, it's that's still reinforcing this like toxic masculinity thing of like it's Tobias's strength mm. and Jake's like natural yeah. heroicness, okay. and those are the things that he wants to be. He doesn't want to be this weak guy who cries like a girl all the time, right? That's that thing he said to Rachel a few books ago, right? Like, oh, you can't have the girls along because I don't want to look weak in front of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he, it's like it's so baked into his insecurities. Mm-hmm. We'll say Marco's characterization of Jake is as a Gryffindor. Yes. Mm-hmm. He interprets Jake as a Gryffindor. But some of the things we've said about Jake in this episode, like how Jake is maybe a little more calculating and how he deals with Marco, we're not really sure. Like that would be a little bit less less of a Gryffindor thing. He, but he's also, Jake's Hufflepuff is on display here too. He's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's really trying so hard, but still giving Marco the kind of like agency. I don't know. It reminds me of like the the thing where Cassie's like, do I really have to make this choice? And Jake's mm-hmm. like, you I'll don't have to. I'll make it for you if you want. Right. It's the same kind of thing where he's like, Marco, like you like, I really think you should tell them for your sake. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's your call. That moment is so sad where Marco's like, how will it help them if I tell them? Jake's like, no, no, I was thinking about it helping you. I know. And for some it's just so far from Marco's mind that that could be helpful to him that he just like can't even right. imagine. Are we ready? Okay, so the next book, The Warning. What you got, Gray? I have this nose in the second picture. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go a long way from a human nose to a rhinoceros horn. Yeah, it's, it takes, yeah, uh, big steps. Five big steps. It's not great. It's, it's not a great cover image. Also, Jake continues to be not large. And solid. That's true. Maybe it's just that his head is very large relative to his body, so he's much larger than he looks. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, more for the rhinoceros. <laughs> what does the like little text say? Because it's always helpful. Yes, he's morphing a rhinoceros, who, by the way, has a toupee in two of these pictures. That's very funny. <laughs> um, now it'll take more than the truth to set you free. Okay. Well, that's bound to be significant. As is the title, The Warning. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So this is going to be another travel to distant places thing. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. This time they're going to go to the Savannah, which is why he needs the rhino morph. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I have no idea why he needs a rhino in this book. I remember a bunch of things about it, but I have no idea. Wow. All right. Sorry, Gray. Sorry to interrupt. No, you know, actually, thinking back on it, I also cannot remember why he needs a rhino. <laughs> I, like, what I know about this book, it doesn't fit at all. Oh, my God. I'm going to go ahead and guess that then they don't go to the savannah. Oh, no. I ruined it. I have a theory as to why he needed the oh, rhino. Oh, gosh. Okay. No, we've said too much. I'm, we, I'm ruining this segment. We have said too much. Oh, my gosh. I, my theory is that it's because they go to the savannah. Go on, Gray. <laughs> Uh, so they're they're going to the savannah now. Yes, I know. Yes. You've given it away. The the one in Georgia or the one in Africa? No, the one in Africa. Okay. Yeah. What does that have to do with the warning or the truth setting people free or, or not setting people free? It, it, it'll take more than the truth to set you free. It'll, it'll take, take a ride of The truth is that the Yurks are invading. Uh-huh. But there needs to be something else. So I think that he is going to be captured. <gasps> and now there's something else that's going to be needed to set him free from that. Oh. From that cap- okay. Is it just him who's captured? So we're doing six redux, but it's harder. Right. Because now he's in a rhino form. Oh, they... They yeah. infest the... He gets can infested the, while he's yeah, a Yeah, can the rhino be infested? I don't know that he is uh, captured by the Yerks. Oh. He might be captured by, like, poachers. <gasps> oh, wow. In okay, all right. And then they have to escape. Do you think they decide to save a lot of rhinos and elephants in Africa by morphing into those animals, cutting off their horns to sell in place of the real rhino and elephant horns, and then morphing back on the animals? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I thought you were going somewhere a lot. And I'm going to say that thing. Is, you know, I think they tried to save the rhinos and elephants by morphing into rhinos and elephants and having a lot of sex. That's definitely what I thought, too. Wow, that is different. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Okay, that would be more direct. I when Cassie's they, a few years older, she's going to have this idea because it's very practical. Right. They. I mean, they. I guess it would have to be the males because they couldn't stay morphed throughout the gestation periods. Yes, good point. Yeah. Ooh, God. <laughs> what is this? It's a what consideration. If you morph while you're pregnant? Yeah, oh my well, God. no, if you demorph while you're pregnant. This is like some time traveler's wife stuff. This is bad. I mean, I think it would be bad. But, like, you don't have time while you're in morph. It's only two hours. Like, you, there's not substantial, like, but development that can happen. Does the baby morph? If as a pregnant human. Oh. Oh, I no, that could be bad. Into yeah. a fly. Where does the baby go? If I become pregnant while a rhino and I morph back into a human, where does the baby, is it out in space? Is there a space I go? What? I have I so think, many more questions. Well, I hate all. I, I know, think Space Zygote will not be the episode title, but no, it's also amazing. Cut it all. It's terrible. Yeah, we should. No, have. the baby goes to Z space. Yeah, <laughs> but to, with the rest of your body, I think I think probably it would be okay if you're a pregnant human and you morph and then you morph back. I can see the baby being okay. But if you're the a baby pregnant has rhino, different like, DNA. I don't trust Z space enough. How does the DNA? But Do it's the, like clothing. Is morphing, is morphing genetic? <gasps> would the baby inherit the morphing power? I think they would. I don't know. It, does it change your DNA? Yeah, it totally changes your DNA. Oh, it's biological technology. Uh-huh. Tobias didn't inherit it. <gasps> oh, but uh, he wasn't conceived from a morph-capable He was. It was anophilate. He was yeah. anophilate. So the human could not morph. Hmm. If he had been born from two more capable andalites, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, do andalite babies get born or do they have to carry the Chloe cube thing around with them? Also, <laughs> Give to the baby. And they have like scorpion butts, so maybe andalites lay eggs. We don't know. <gasps> Whoa, <laughs> this is amazing. I forget where we were on the discussion of the warning. 
They were going to the savannah. Just, uh, to the yeah. savannah. Yeah, he gets captured by poachers and tells them about the Yerks, but it's not enough or something. Uh, <laughs> what, what and, and he has to escape. <laughs> How are the Yerks involved, if at all? They're not. The Yerks this is don't have to be involved. In what? Have we had a book where there's no Yerks? I don't think so yet. I mean, we've had them where the Yerks were not that important. Yeah. So this is going to be another one where, oh no, the Yerks can't catch me, but really What's what the I'm about. Mm, he's warning the other rhinos to watch out for poachers. Ah, okay. <laughs> so we more Serrano. Listeners, Grace very confident about this one. Rhinos. You guys, I was so good at the last prediction that this one I feel is yeah. okay if it's just total crap. Yeah, that's that's true. You've really you've got some cred. I can right. do every other one good. Also, we don't know yet that you'll be wrong, so we'll find out. We do. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I'm excited to talk about it next time on Animorphology. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the books on our website. <laughs> We're cutting that, right? I'm editing this. I can cut that.